Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 28 as we continue our focus and celebration of the resurrection of our Lord. So we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 28. And by the grace of God and with your patience, we're going to try to work through the entire chapter. So Matthew 28 is Matthew's account of the resurrection of our Lord. We saw John's account that we read earlier in John chapter 20. But we're going to look at Matthew's uh, version as guided and written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this morning. So Jesus died on Friday afternoon around 3 o'clock. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man waiting for the kingdom of God, a secret disciple, by the grace of God, gathered up his courage to approach Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And Pilate, after he conferred with the centurion who was at the cross of Golgotha, and had witnessed the death of our Lord, and once the centurion confirmed that Jesus was indeed dead, Pilate gave the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. We also know that Nicodemus from the Sanhedrin, who had come to the Lord by night in John chapter 3 to ask questions of the Lord, had also become a disciple, and he had joined Joseph, and Nicodemus had brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed about a hundred pounds. And with that and with strips of cloth, they wrapped the body of the Lord after he was taken down from the cross and embedded within it the spices, the myrrh, and the aloes to prepare the Lord for burial. Joseph of Arimathea had recently had hewn out of the rock nearby a new tomb, which no one else had been lain. And they took Jesus there. They put him in the tomb. And they, and they probably had some servants, helpers, rolled a very large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and then they went away. That was on Friday. And this tomb was located in a garden, and it was very close to the place of the crucifixion. We also are told that besides Joseph and Nicodemus, there were some women that were there also. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, were looking on to see where Jesus was laying. Obviously, they wanted to know, and they followed them as they were preparing the body of our Lord and as they placed Him inside the tomb. There is a measure of urgency because according to Jewish law, Jesus needed to be buried before the Sabbath started, which was that evening at sundown. So the Lord was prepared for burial and placed in the tomb before the sun actually set. So it's late in the afternoon. Concerning the disciples, the biblical record is pretty much silent about them until Sunday morning. 
Now we're told that there was some activity that went on 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 the Sabbath, which is Saturday. We read of that in Matthew chapter 27, if you just glance over there, starting in verse 62. So Jesus died on Friday afternoon on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. It dawns on the chief priests and the Pharisees that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead, and that greatly concerned them. It's interesting, it didn't register with the disciples, but it registered with the enemies of our Lord. So in Matthew 27, in verse 62, we read, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, this would be the Sabbath day on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now these uh, soldiers were would have been Roman soldiers, not temple policemen. So I believe that these guys uh, were actually Roman soldiers. Pilate gave them permission to take a Roman guard and to go and to seal and guard the tomb. So they would have gone to the tomb. The chief priests and Pharisees would have led them there. Apparently they knew where Jesus was buried. They would have probably rolled the stone away and inspect it to make sure that Jesus was in there. They would have been very foolish not to have done that. So they would have rolled the stone away. They would have inspected it. The chief priest could identify, yeah, that's Jesus. The the wrapping on his head probably didn't cover maybe the entirety of his face at that time. But they somehow confirmed that Jesus was in there. They rolled the stone back in its place and they set a seal. The nature of the seal was probably a cord or a rope, and it was attached to the stone, the rolled stone itself, with a piece of wax or clay. So they would take the end of the rope, they would smash the clay onto it, securing it to the stone, and then press a seal on there. They would take the other end of the rope and cord, and they would take it to the wall of the tomb itself, maybe the lintel, over the entrance way into the tomb, place the other end of the cord there, smash it in, secure it with some wax or clay with another seal. So if anybody rolled the stone away, the rope would be pulled out and it'd be impossible to get it back in there with the seal without damaging it. So they could clearly know whether or not someone had tampered with the tomb. So they sealed the stone. So they have a Roman guard at the tomb. They have the seal. They have the stone covering the entranceway. And as the hymn that we sang earlier reminds us, vain the stone, the watch, the seal. Vain. They cannot stop the Lord from rising from the dead. They can do all that they can to prevent it. But vain is their effort to prevent the resurrection. 
So the disciples, again, they're kind of out of the picture. They're hiding in a room. But early on Sunday morning, the women are on the move. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now if you harmonize the other Gospels, there's probably about five women that are there, more than just these two. Some some of the authors will, will add additional women. But for Matthew's focus, he's just focusing on the two. Two Marys. So they go early in the morning. Obviously, they know where the tomb is. If you just glance back at chapter 27 again and look at verse uh, 59. Let's see. I lost my verse. Where is it? 50, let's see, 55, uh, 55, 61. Thank you. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So they had followed them there. So they were there watching them put the body in the tomb. So they knew where the tomb was. So any theory that the women went to the wrong tomb is kind of far-fetched. It's hard to believe. After all, Nicodemus and Joseph could easily have verified, no, this is where the tomb is. And it was Joseph's own tomb. He had paid for it. It was his tomb. He knew where it was. So any theory that the people went to the wrong tomb can be easily set aside. So what were the women doing? Well, If you look at the other gospel accounts, they came to finish the burial preparations. And Mark and Luke tells us that they brought spices and perfumes that they might anoint his body. Now, he had been prepared with the other spices, but as part of the burial custom, you anoint the body. And of course, they're bringing perfume and they're also bringing other spices They return again early on Sunday morning. These women want to make their contribution to the burial of their teacher, their Lord, their Messiah, their Master. And they come and they show their love and their tender affection, their devotion to the Lord. They were dedicated to Christ. You see their loyalty, their attachment to Him was profound. And I'm sure they're coming that morning and tears are running down their cheeks. They are coming with a broken heart because all of them have been stunned by what has happened to their Lord. They expected the Lord to bring in an earthly kingdom and for Him to to overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as the nation over all nations. And none of that happened. That was not the purpose of Christ in His first coming anyway. But suddenly the one that they followed, the one they loved, their teacher, the ones that they thought were bringing in this glorious kingdom had now been arrested and captured and crucified. The most shameful death they could imagine on a Roman cross he had been put to death. 
and the whole world was shattered. Just imagine the disciples and these women, what, what the, just the heavy burden they bore on their hearts, the sadness, the gloom, not understanding what had happened. They arrived there early in the morning. They're probably unaware that a Roman guard had been set there the day before to guard the place. Of course, by the time they arrive, the guards are laid out on the ground. But you might wonder, again, where are the disciples? Where are the men? There's only women here. They're hiding away in the room with a closet, with a closed door. Because this violent tsunami of events had washed away their hopes, their dreams, their expectations of the future was turned upside down. Their minds are just jumbled up with chaos and confusion and bewilderment and disillusionment. What has happened? They're trying to understand it, and I think they're in a state of shell shock. They're probably repeating to themselves, I can't believe our Lord is dead. What are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? Only John was at the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother. Where were the other disciples when the Lord is suffering on the cross? They weren't there. When Jesus was buried, you have Joseph and you have Nicodemus. Where are the disciples? Where are there? Why aren't they there helping out? There's only women there. Women were at the cross. The men weren't. Women were there when Jesus was buried. The men weren't. And now early on Sunday morning, the men are hiding in a room. They should be leading. But there's only women. Instead, the fear had frozen their feet. Their anxiety had caused their inactivity. And so you have these godly women full of love and devotion risking whatever it is to go and minister and anoint the body of our Lord. But where are the men? It's a good question for us men to think about. So oftentimes women lead because where are the men? Where are the men who love their wives and are willing to sacrifice themselves out of love to minister to their wives? Where are the men who leave, lead their families and the men who lead churches and where are the men to lead the people where Jesus is there were no men Pentecost by the grace of God will change that and I think that's a word of encouragement for us today because oftentimes as men we fall short don't we we fail miserably but the spirit of God can empower us the Spirit of God can fill us. The Spirit of God can help us be the men that we ought to be. The leaders. And as of Acts, suddenly the men are bold. They're preaching. They're testifying. They're witnessing. The Spirit of God made the difference. 
And oh, may God give the church and families and marriages men of God who love the Lord and who lead by the grace of God. Well, in verse 2 through verse 7, something amazing now happens. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So now we have this account of this incredible earthquake. And if you remember back in Matthew 27, there was an earthquake when Jesus died. There's another earthquake when he rises from the dead. We're told that the the rocks were split and the earth just quaked. This is hints of the of the groaning of the present earth as a prelude to the coming new heavens and the new earth, as we saw on Friday night. The earth will one day shed its grave clothes and be transformed and glorified into that new heavens and new earth. But I'm wondering, I'm speculating at this earthquake when Jesus is rising from the dead, is the ground actually groaning and shaking or is it trembling with excitement and anticipation that when Jesus rose from the dead, that was the guarantee that one day this earth would be transformed in glory as well. And maybe it's just so excited about that event that there's an earthquake that takes... I don't know which one it is. Groaning or just joyful anticipation. But there's this incredible earthquake. The earthquake uh, was to, in effect, to help announce... Also, the coming of the angel. So we read in in, uh, verse 2 again that the earthquake occurred and an angel of of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So now the angel has rolled away the stone. Remember, this was a, the scriptures tell us this was a very large stone and this thing could have weighed a couple of tons. I mean, it was a huge stone. Took a lot of men to roll it into place and to roll it away. But this angel did it all by himself. So he rolled away the stone. And then he sat on top of it. And in part, he rolled away the stone, obviously, to reveal the empty tomb and to declare Christ's triumph over death. So he's now sitting on the, t- on, on the stone with the tomb now open to just show that Jesus is alive. He's not in there. The effect on the, on the soldiers was amazing in verse 4. You had this angel in verse 3. His appearance was light like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And in verse 4, the guards shook for fear and became like dead men. So again, the watch 
The reason why they were there, they utterly failed. They were to prevent the disciples from stealing the body. Of course, that's not what happened anyway. But to prevent the body from leaving, and of course, they couldn't stop the actual resurrection of our Lord. And I think God was in heaven laughing at them, the Roman soldiers, at their pitiful attempts to frustrate the plan of redemption forged by the Godhead in the annals of eternity past. God is laughing at the chief priests. He's laughing at the Sanhedrin. He's laughing at the Roman soldiers because they cannot prevent redemption from taking place. The resurrection was... I think the Father's response to the perfect sacrifice of His Son on the cross. On the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. So when He fully absorbed the last drop of the penalty that we owe for our sins, and when the very last drop of the lake of fire was poured out upon Him for our sins, He cried out from the cross, it is finished. And I think in the resurrection, the Father in effect was saying, I am satisfied by the sacrifice of my Son. My justice is satisfied. My wrath is satisfied. My love for my people is satisfied. And the words spoken by the angel to Joseph at Jesus' virgin conception came true that you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And when Jesus arose from the dead, the empty tomb in effect was the Father saying, I am satisfied by the sacrifice of my Son. The angel then addresses the women in verses 5-7. through He gives them words of comfort. He says, don't be afraid. Verse 5, I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified, but He's not here. I love the way the Luke records it because the angel said other things that Matthew doesn't record. Luke got some of it. The angel also said to the women, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And I love that. Why do you seek the living one? among those who are dead. What a contrast between the Lord of glory and the curse of death. And then the angel says to them, come and see. And at this time they go in, they glance inside the tomb, they see the linen wrappings, the headpiece all rolled up, so that no one stole the body. Because the grave clothes are lying there just as if the body had passed miraculously through them. If you stole the body, you wouldn't take time to unwrap it and then wrap it back up in the very same form it was as if it was on his body. No one would take the time to do that. That's impossible. So the the stolen body theory, of course, is ridiculous as well. And then the angel gave the women instructions in verse 7, go quickly and tell the disciples that He's risen from the dead. And behold, He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see Him. Behold, I have told you. So then, in verses 8-10, through Jesus meets the women. 
In verse 8, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And again, I just try to, I try to get into the mindset of these women who are so weighed down with the confusion and just the, the fear and the sadness of the crucifixion and the death of our Lord. And now suddenly they rebound to the, to the opposite extreme of joy. They can't believe it. So they're, they're, they're quickly running away with fear and great joy from what the angel has told them that Jesus is alive. And they just, they're just the, the intense opposite of what they were experiencing. So amazing emotional swings here. And in verse nine, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And I wonder, you know, why is it that Jesus first appeared to women and not to men? Well, kind of as, as I've already indicated, I think possibly appeared to them. And Mary Magdalene was actually the very first one that saw the Lord based on the other gospel accounts. But this is a reward, I think, for their devotion and love and loyalty to the Lord. I mean, they were there at the cross. They were there at the burial. They were there now on Sunday morning to anoint the body of our Lord. They're the faithful ones. They're the committed ones. And I think as a reward for their love and devotion, the Lord blessed them with the first appearance. Now Mary Magdalene, you remember about Mary Magdalene, she had been demon-possessed. She was a slave and under the control and power of seven demons. Now we can only imagine what torment, what suffering, what vile wickedness she was driven into when she was possessed by seven demons. But Jesus had miraculously saved her and delivered her. You don't think her affection for the Lord was deep? You don't think that she remembers the slavery of sin, the corruption, the agony, the, the evil that she was immersed in, and yet now she had been forgiven and set free? Talk about love for the Lord. She had it. She was there. And the Lord blessed her. She was the first to see the risen Lord. What did the women do? They came up and they fell and embraced His feet. That's such a tender expression of worship. You see, there's no greater display of joyful humility there's no greater acknowledgement of Christ's exalted majesty and divinity than to fall at His feet in humility and to embrace His feet to worship Him as the divine, majestic Son of God. There's a humility and the exalted nature of Christ. So they couldn't embrace anything other than His feet because of their own sense of humility. And so they fall on their face before the Lord and they wrap their arms around His feet, probably kissing them as they had done before 
worshiping him, so full of joy that he's alive, not even understanding it all, but just rejoicing in it. They fall at his feet and they worship him, which would be blasphemy if he was not God in human flesh. And then Jesus in verse 10 gives them instructions. Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. And then in verses 11 through 15, we have just the utter futile scheme of the chief priests. So we pick it up in verse 11. Now while they were on their way, that would be the women, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, that would be Pilate, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews. And it is to this day. So some of the soldiers go back into the city. Now, how many soldiers were there? Well, we don't know for sure. We know that when Christ was crucified, there were four Roman soldiers because they divide his garments up into four pieces, one for each soldier that was there. And the soldiers would have rotated on their shift, taking three hours each. But notice, as we read earlier, that Pilate had given the chief priests and the Pharisees who came to him and said, look, we need a guard because, you know, he says he's going to rise from the dead and we, we want to prevent that from happening. We don't want the, the disciples to steal the body. And Pilate said to them, well, go and secure it as you know how. In other words, go out and make it as secure as you want, is basically what Pilate said to them. If that's the case, I doubt four soldiers at the tomb would have been sufficient. I mean, the chief priests and the Pharisees are speculating, okay, there's 11 disciples now. Judas is probably dead by this time. He's hung himself. But also Jerusalem is swarming with Jews because this is the Passover. And many of those other Jews are going to be disciples and they may have heard about it and they may get in on the plot to try to steal the body or something. And I think that the chief priests and the Pharisees are probably paranoid. And I think in light of the potential for a big crowd to come and take the body and steal it, that they would have had more than four soldiers there. I don't know how many, maybe six, maybe 12, maybe 20. I think because of their paranoia, they probably thought, you know, you can't have too many soldiers at the tomb. So there were probably a good number of them, I would guess. But when Christ arose from the dead, as we were told, they shook for fear along with the earthquake. So I don't know what shook more, the ground or their knees with that angel showing up. And then it says that they become like dead men. So apparently with the angelic appearance, these soldiers fall to the ground like they're maybe they're, they get shot with a taser gun or something. They fall to the ground. They're completely helpless. They're powerless. They can't stop anything that's going on. 
and then eventually some of them come to or they regain their strength and they come into the city and obviously they're going to report what happened to the Sanhedrin. And so we pick it up again in verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And then they tell them, look, just tell them, tell everybody that you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole the body. So the fake news starts being spread at that point, And everybody believes it. A lot of people believe it. Not quite everybody. But notice what they did. They bribed them. Bribery. With a large sum of money. It's just interesting how the providence of God makes fools out of the enemies of God. Because the Sanhedrin, the reason why they hired these guys or wanted these soldiers, whether they paid them money, probably so, I would imagine. The reason why they wanted them to guard the tomb is so the disciples wouldn't steal the body. And after Jesus rose from the dead to try to figure out the story to tell, they told the same soldiers, now go tell everybody they, that the disciples stole the body. It's just, it's just totally a reversal of what their original plan was. They're frantic. They have one plan and it gets demolished, so they use that as an excuse. So now it's the very story that's being told. The very thing they wanted to prevent is now the very thing they want proclaimed, that the disciples stole the body. And how foolish do they appear? How much were these religious leaders given to lying and fraud and deception? And just imagine how ridiculous this story is just on the surface. So let's say someone's walking down the street in Jerusalem. They see one of those soldiers who had been a guard at Jesus' tomb. And they say, well, you're one of those soldiers that was guarding the tomb, weren't you? And the soldier would have to say, yeah, I was there. So what happened? Well, the soldier would say, we fell asleep during the night and the disciples came and stole the body. Really, you fell asleep and you lost the one you were supposed to protect? Isn't that a death sentence? What are you doing here? You ought to be dead. How does that work? So, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that, but we were all there and we all just fell asleep and the disciples came and rolled away the stone and we didn't hear anything and uh, they carried off the body. That's what happened. That's our story and we're sticking with it. So you say, well, let me see if I understand this right. You say that all of y'all fell asleep. Disciples came, rolled away the stone, probably making all kinds of noise. They walked off with the body. Not one of y'all woke up and heard anything or, or woke up and stopped them. You were sound asleep. Yeah, we were just snoring like logs. I mean, we were so tired. You know, you can just imagine this soldier trying to, you know, elaborate on the story to make it sort of kind of make sense. And then finally, you might ask that soldier, well, let me, let me see if I got this right. You were sound asleep. So how do you know that the disciples stole the body if you were asleep? Well, it's been nice talking to you. I'll see you later. It just doesn't hold any water at all. 
the excuse of the disciples stealing the body. But that's what they were paid, a large sum of money, and they took the money, and that was the story they began to tell. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He has told the women to tell the men, go to Galilee, I'm going to meet you there. And eventually that occurs. So the disciples make it up to Galilee, and we pick it up in verse 16. It says, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Now, I don't think they were doubtful that he had been raised from the dead. I think when Jesus appeared, probably he starts approaching them from a distance, and some of them were doubtful that that was really the Lord till he got closer. And if you look at verse 18, that makes sense. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. So initially they see Jesus as a distance. Some recognize him. Some are doubtful. Is that really Jesus or not? I don't think they're doubting the resurrection at this point because this is close to the time of our Lord's ascension. And by then they had all been won over. Even doubting Thomas was a firm believer a week after the resurrection. This is several weeks after that, I think. So again, it's, it's probably a doubtfulness in terms of recognizing him. And this is what Jesus says in verse 18. The Great Commission. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. So now he possesses universal authority over everything. Everything. Every person, every angel, every atom of the universe is now under the authority of the resurrected, incarnate, messianic king. I love what Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So he has all authority right now at this second. He has all authority over the entire universe. His divine nature always had that, but now as the incarnate Son of God resurrected in glory, He possesses all authority over heaven and earth. Complete, total authority over everything. Then in verse 19, He says, Go and therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a reference to the Trinity here. Notice baptizing them in the name, singular, the name, but then of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see the threefold reference to the Holy Trinity. The name, singular, stresses the unity, the one God, the one Godhead, and yet the plurality of three persons within the Godhead. And this is one of the clear Trinitarian formulas uh, given in the Gospels. So he says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So now they're to go out and make disciples by baptizing them, then teaching them all that Christ has commanded them. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he says, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to be with you always. 
and I'm going to be with you all the way until until this world ends and the new world comes. I will always be with you. That's his name, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's assuring them of his presence spiritually through the Holy Spirit will be with them until the second coming when he'll be with them again physically in the new heavens and the new earth forever. But he's always going to be with them. He's the power. He's the boldness. He's the courage. He's the wisdom in making disciples. So they need to always look to him. One final thing I want to point out in closing is that there's one other interesting event that takes place around this time in Matthew chapter 27. If you look back there, this is at the Lord's death, starting in verse 50 of Matthew 27. And it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, i.e. who had died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This is phenomenal. Matthew is the only one who mentions this. Of course, we know the torn veil. That's mentioned in other places. The tearing of the veil from top to bottom was not only a sign of judgment on the Old Testament temple that it, it could not make peace between God and man, but it was a torn veil because through the blood of Jesus Christ, now any sinner... Jew or Gentile that repents of their sins and puts their trust in Jesus alone can have access into the very presence of God. It's a torn veil. He's opened up a new and living way in Hebrews chapter 10 that any who put their trust in Christ can now have direct, immediate, personal fellowship with the living God. That's the significance of the torn veil. But what about these resurrections? Verse 52, the tombs are opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. This is very interesting. Probably what happened when Jesus died, the earthquake opened up the tombs, miraculously maybe rolled away the stones or opened the doors to all these tombs. And then on Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead, then those dead bodies arose because it says they came out and appeared to other people after Jesus' resurrection. So not only was Jesus raised from the dead, you have all these other saints in the Jerusalem area. We don't know exactly how many, but they were miraculously raised from the dead. Now, were they raised in glory like Jesus was? Or were they like Lazarus? And my inclination would be it would be more like the resurrections of Lazarus. They were raised miraculously from the dead. They went into the city. They talked with people. They lived for so many months and years and then eventually would have died again, just like Lazarus would have. Some people think they were glorified as well. But all you say, well, why did that happen? Why did this event take place? And I think so often in Scripture, when God is going to do something glorious, 
of an incredible magnitude, he gives us a little preview of it ahead of time. Remember last week when we were looking at the transfiguration of the Lord, when the disciples saw the Lord transfigured on the mount, they saw the glory, they saw the brightness, His face shone like the sun. That was a preview of the glory that Jesus would bring at His second coming. And that's why they were so confident that Christ would return because they saw the coming attractions. They saw the preview. It was one that predicted and foreshadowed the other. And I think the same way with this resurrection. God ordained that some of the saints, that there just be a a great resurrection of other saints. And what it speaks to me is that Christ, and because He is God in human flesh, there is such power in His own resurrection that it just flowed out into all of these tombs and raised all these other people from the dead. It's just a, a little glimpse of the glory and the miracle on such a grand stage of what will occur at the second coming when all who are dead in all of the world will be raised from the dead for a resurrection of judgment and a resurrection of life for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I think this little resurrection, this appearances, which would have caused all kinds of news spread around Jerusalem, oh, Uncle so-and-so, he's alive again. We just buried him last week. And you can just imagine all the news going around in, in addition to Christ being raised from the dead. And I think all of this is just a a small little exclamation mark, if you will, that shows and prefigures the glory of the final general resurrection of the dead when Jesus comes back. So when they were raised, again, probably at the time Jesus arose from the dead, but all of these people now walking around, talking with family, talking with friends, amazing everybody, is merely a token and a foreshadowing of our own resurrection in glory when Jesus returns. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ is the first fruits from the dead. And then we also will be resurrected when He comes again. But each in His own order, Christ the first fruits, and after those, after that, those who belong to Christ at His coming. So all this little resurrection should remind us that in the resurrection of Christ, that guarantees your resurrection if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It gives us confidence. It's the exclamation mark. It's the certainty that those who die in Christ will be raised in glory. And we see a little bitty foreshadowing of that, of all these dead saints rising up and walking around. It's a guarantee that we have a glorious future to look forward to because Jesus rose from the dead. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. He conquered our sin and our death. And He rose from the dead to prove it. He's now sitting at the Father's right hand so that any sinner now can go to Him in faith and be saved and be forgiven and have the hope of everlasting life and the hope of the future resurrection of glory that is yet to come.
So on this Easter Sunday, we rejoice in the resurrection of our Lord. We have hope of the glory to come because of what Jesus has done for us and because he has now been raised and has ascended to the Father's right hand and because of the hope that we have in him, we can find strength today to persevere in times of trial and persecution and we can find encouragement to seek grace from him to be a bold witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ knowing that for whoever trusts in Him on the day of judgment which is coming, there will be no condemnation, only resurrection glory. So may God fill our hearts with joy today that we worship a risen Savior. And let us worship Him and rejoice in Him and look forward to the glory that awaits us because of His resurrection on the third day. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father God, we want to thank You, Lord, for this special day each year that we can give uh, additional attention to a truth that we celebrate every day and certainly every Lord's Day, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners' sin and rose again on the third day to show His triumph over our sin and the curse of death that we all have upon us. And so, Lord, thank You that we can celebrate that Jesus is alive. He's alive right now. Any sinner can go to Him in heaven and repent and believe and call upon His name and ask Him to forgive them of their sins. And He's alive and He's promised that He would do it. So, Lord, help people do that today. And for those of us who know the Lord, may we rejoice in great gladness that the living one is not among the dead. He's in heaven. And we can worship Him and have immediate access into His presence because He has opened up a new and living way for us. So, Lord, thank You for this day that we can celebrate both the death and especially the resurrection of our Lord. And we pray this in His name. Amen.